BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Beekeepers Naturals is disrupting the conventional medicine cabinet by creating nature-powered medicine that works. My friends at Beekeepers Naturals use a very special, potent natural ingredient called propolis. And if you haven't heard about it yet, here's what the buzz is about. Bee propolis acts as the medicine of the beehive. It fights germs and protects the bees with over 300 beneficial vitamins and minerals. And it's a product that supports our favorite little pollinators because bees are getting destroyed nowadays. I, for example, like to use the Bee Immune Propolis Throat Spray before I record Raising Good Humans. So for a limited time, Beekeepers Naturals is offering my listeners an exclusive deal. They will ship you a free two-week supply of Bee Immune Propolis Throat Spray, and you pay $5 for shipping. To claim this deal, you have to visit beekeepersnaturals.com slash humans, B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com slash humans. You can also find Beekeepers Naturals nationwide in over 2,000 stores, including Target, Whole Foods, and Sprouts. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman. And first, I want to wish you a magical, meaningful Mother's Day weekend. My guest today is Professor Alan Sroof, who I can't begin to explain the contributions he has made to the field of developmental psychology He and his team at the University of Minnesota Institute of Child Development conducted the longest running study of human psychological development, establishing reasons why we behave as we do and see the world as we do. His groundbreaking theoretical and empirical contributions to the field of developmental psychology and developmental psychopathology have been reported in academic journals for decades and in over 200 peer-reviewed papers, journal articles, books. His motivation to pursue the study of human development was personal because he was raised in a dysfunctional family and he wanted to know why he had the problems he did and how his mental health could be improved. So after all these decades of research and truly being a pioneer in this field, he's written a book called A Compelling Idea that kind of merges memoir and science 
which we also did last week when we were talking about attachment. I really thought these topics are so important because we know in many ways from his research that coming to terms with your experience, having your own narrative, having been parented and grown up and really unpacking all of that is part of our best work to support our babies and growing children. So we're going to talk about the role of early close relationships in the emergence of self and how these affect the development of the person from birth to adulthood. You know, it's funny because it is Mother's Day and I thought about the fact that I was not having a mom on or a mom researcher. And yet, Professor Sroof is the founder and leading contributor to the field of developmental psychopathology and such an internationally recognized expert on early attachment relationships, on emotional development, and on developmental psychology that I also felt like this is, this is a person who's contributed to the way we understand how we are mothers. So I wanted to celebrate that. And I also want to give a loving, compassionate shout out to my sister moms listening. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. And of course, if you enjoy this episode, I would love your help in getting this podcast out there by just going and writing a review, rating the episode, rating the podcast, and um, of course, subscribing. And keep in touch with me by DM on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. I'm so thrilled to share this conversation with you. Happy Mother's Day weekend to all mothers and all of you who are standing in the place of mothers or who identify as mothers. I applaud you and I support you and all of us. So first, just to set the context, because I mean, essentially you created an entire field. <laughs> I would love to just have you talk about how you came to the study of how we come to be who we are and create this whole entire field as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Well, in ways it began when I was a child, of course, like a lot of psychologists. So I was always interested in that. Then uh, kind of accidentally came to developmental psychology. I went to school at the uh, University of Wisconsin, and at the time I was primarily interested in working with Harry Harlow and Carl Rogers, and that didn't work out at all for, for different reasons. Rogers left, Harlow was inaccessible. So I wound up working uh, with a behaviorist named Peter Lang and with Mavis Hetherington, who was a developmental psychologist, as well as a clinician. And then she encouraged, encouraged me to take my internship at the Langley Porter Clinic in San Francisco. And there I met a man named Louis Breger, who really was a developmental thinker. And that led me to decide to go take my job at the University of Minnesota Institute of Child Development. I, I really was trained in clinical psychology, not in developmental psychology, but I became interested in developmental and somehow believed that an understanding of development was the key to understanding all the clinical questions I had. So then I marched off to Minnesota and 
trained as a behaviorist, started uh, doing some research on infants. And it doesn't take long studying infants to not be a behaviorist anymore because you just see these incredible changes they go through that are completely independent of reinforcements that we give them. You know, babies smile right away when they're born. Mm. And uh, all babies play. We don't sit around reinforcing them to play, to babble or, or any of the stuff babies do. And then uh, I encountered attachment theory, and there was quite a, a convergence of coincidences there, too. I read this wonderful paper by Mary Ainsworth that was published in 1969 called Attachment and Dependency, in which she argued that we needed to think about the situation of babies very differently. Attachment was not the same thing as being dependent. Yes, infants are dependent, but their attachment, their, their connection with their parents can't be understood in terms of a trait of dependency. It was a great paper. And about that same time, a beginning graduate student named Everett Waters came into my office. And uh, Everett was a brash young person, but extraordinarily talented. And so his brashness was not unfounded. <laughs> but it was, it was unusual to have a first-year graduate student offer to do research with me. <laughs> it was the way he put it. Offer. Yeah. He would, he would teach me how to do this Ainsworth strange situation assessment if I, in turn, would teach him how to do these psychophysiological measures I was doing. I, I had the good sense to take him up on that. And I, I've always felt that uh, what makes for a good career as a researcher is to be able to learn from your students. The people that can actually collaborate with students learn a lot. So we started, we started this study. We did an attachment study, indeed. And we indeed uh, measured the heart rates of these babies while they were in this strange situation. So we did put our, our ideas together and wrote some really good papers. After Everett and I worked together, another collaboration was begun with Byron Eglin, my colleague, and Everett and uh, his fellow student, Brian Vaughn, and I worked together with Byron to launch this study that began before babies were born, and these individuals are, are now in their 40s. They were studied in incredible detail, and so there were really important lessons that were derived from this study. And not just for the research field, although I think there has been a big impact on the field of research and theory and developmental psychology. But a lot of these lessons are really important for parents, teachers, social workers, clinicians, anyone who is interested in or works with children, and frankly, anyone that wants to understand themselves. This um, book you mentioned uh, was very special to me. It's quite a short book. I think a lot of people could read it in just a few hours, and that was on purpose. And it's also uh, written in fairly non-academic language, and that was on purpose, because the, these papers you mentioned are all over the place in all kinds of journals, but they're, they're technical, they're not that accessible. I can't imagine a parent wanting to try to wade their way through all of these things. No. <laughs> so I wanted, to, I wanted to write this book in a way that was 
engaging and readable and emphasized the lessons we learn rather than the details of the methods. There's, there's enough about the methods so that you'd have some reason to believe what I'm saying, but uh, not so much that you say, when will this chapter end, please, so that I can see what where this is going. And the other thing I did on purpose, and partly this was for my own uh, satisfaction and, and uh, it really helped me in my own personal growth, was I did weave my own life story into this book. And I had a couple of reasons for doing that. One of the main ones is that people sometimes take attachment theory as being rather pessimistic. You know, the idea that if if you have an early attachment difficulties, well, then you're doomed. Mm -hmm. if, if your parents uh, had problems, uh, if there was addiction or abuse in your family, then you're doomed. And we never believed that in our project. In fact, we have lots of data, lots of papers on change. One thing we did was track the ups and downs of parental depression and showed that child behavior problems went up and down with them. And lots of papers on resilience and growth. So we never believed that. And I thought I could really make that case by being out front with my own personal struggles beginning in childhood and follow that through to being, as you would say in your New York way, more than I will say, a successful <laughs> psychologist and, you know, more or less have my feet on the ground and more or less am capable of relating to others now. I mean, I was not, that was not a strong suit at one point in my life, but, um, you know, with the, with the kids we studied, you can't really give all the details of their lives to protect their identities. So you, you obscure certain facts, you, you change others. You give a kid an older sibling he didn't have, you have a parent die in a way they didn't die, and all that kind of thing. And I ethically believe I have to do that when I describe the children in our study. Mm -hmm. There are lots of anecdotes in the book it's about children in our study but they're all camouflage. In my own case, I could say exactly the truth as I knew it. I didn't have to worry about my parents are deceased. I talked to my brother and sister and got their permission to say this stuff. They were happy for me to do it. My own children saw drafts of this. And so I felt I could do that. Just one case of a, of a kid who had you know, garden variety problems probably. It was a work in progress throughout uh, childhood, youth, and early adulthood into middle adulthood. And I enjoyed doing it that way. And it makes the point that the story of development is always the same, whatever you're talking about. You're talking about the way the brain develops. There's a certain nature to brain development. The way the universe developed, the way an individual develops, the way I developed. It's always the same nature. You can illustrate the same principles of development with many different phenomena. And that's important. It's important to understand how development works, how it happens to you early on as a formative influence, but nonetheless can be changed, but nonetheless is still a factor in your life. All of that is true at once. Mm. You're 
the way the way you are right now is a product of your entire history and your current circumstances. That's a direct quote from John Bowlby, the pioneer of attachment theory. And when you change, when you have encounter experiences that help you get better or that take you down a notch, that does not mean that what was there before is now erased. And so understanding how those of us like myself who had difficult childhoods and somehow with help of relationship experiences later got better, I still have certain vulnerabilities. And in fact, they're the same vulnerabilities I had when I was a child. They don't have the same force. I have coping mechanisms that are more robust than they were at one time. But when one uh, has a therapy experience, for example, and it, it helps you uh, get better understanding and and better uh, ability to be open to your experience. That doesn't change the issues that you brought when you came to therapy in the first place. It just helps you be more aware of them and so forth. When you said that you started in clinical psychology to make sense kind of, of to understand your family and your family history and yourself, and then you kind of shifted your lens toward development because that informs Mm -hmm. clinical. I actually had the opposite experience where wasn't really the opposite. I just, I, I planned on doing clinical, but then I took like the required courses like speed dating and I took abnormal psych and counseling psychology and social psychology and developmental psychology. And when I got to just this intro to developmental psych course, I lit up like I found my partner. (laughs) I just felt understood and I thought it made sense. And then I ended up getting introduced to developmental psychopathology. And I was so interested that those different lenses aren't very out there in the world. And so when people hear psychologists, they tend to think about problems and you're your optimistic view of attachment and all of the things that you're talking about, even when you're pulling up your own life experiences is I think reflective of a field that gets a bad rap and partly because it's not translated properly. So it often, this brilliant work, you mentioned Bowlby. If you look at Bowlby, the theorist behind attachment. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. The words are still so true. It's not like, oh, now all these decades later, we found out that in fact, it was this. It's that all these decades later, I think the translation is getting out into the world in a more accurate way Mm -hmm. because for so long, the academic community, and I think it's still kind of the case, the academic community doesn't get the marketing that more pop psychology gets. And with parenting, it feels particularly damaging. And so I just want to highlight your work with your words because it's a much more hopeful perspective, despite the fact that there's tons, you know, there's also a lot of research that can make you feel like, oh, 
this is deep things. These relationships matter. And if, you know, depending on the experiences, things may not go in the way that you of your hopes and dreams. But I just wanted to say that because I'm I'm grateful for it. And I also am grateful that you're in this space here, which is out in the world, not in the academic community. In some ways, I get embarrassed, like it diminishes my academic like my intentions to be an academic shifted a bit. Cause I was like, I want this out in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. That that's, that's the reason we did this study in the first place, right from the beginning. Oh, wow. Right from the beginning. Byron was primarily interested in child maltreatment. When we started this study, he wanted to understand the, the root causes of child maltreatment and the developmental consequences. I mean, right from the beginning, the whole idea was we were going to find out stuff that would help parents. And the reason that the Bouvier-Ainsworth theory was so appealing is it's really close to human experience. I've had a lot of opportunity to talk to people who have no academic training about this material, and it's completely easy to grasp. The idea, you know, starting out with what do infants need? You know, why are human infants born so helpless for so long? Well, that's to allow our flexible brains time to develop in interaction with what we experience. This is what allows us to adapt to so many environments. Well, that helpless infant, that, that's a good thing, but that means that infant's very dependent on relationships with caregivers. That's not a bad thing either. And caregivers are disposed to respond to infants. Infants have a few capacities they bring with them when they're born that make them pretty easy to engage. And they have a strong tendency to want to engage. So the formation of attachment, which it should be noted, takes place over time. It's, it's not an instant thing. Over the first year and beyond, the attachment is forming. And this doesn't mean the early months aren't important. Of course they are. They're providing a foundation. We look at it as the infant is born with really without a self. And so if you think of the self as an organization of your attitudes, expectations, behaviors, beliefs, that's what your self is. Well, where the heck does that come from then? Well, it happens that infants are born into a caregiving environment and the caregiver can create an organization around the infant that they adjust to fit the infant. And the infant comes to gradually participate in that organization more and more actively until they are virtually co-equal active participants in it. Now you have a dyadic organization, a truly two-person organization. As the infant grows and the self emerges, that organization becomes the organization of your personality. Once you have that picture in your head, you can see why what parents provide for infants is so important. And then you can also see why if things go poorly, why subsequent relationships are so important for transforming that developmental course. When I first read Lou Breger's book, he, he was working on this when I was at Langley Porter in the late 1960s, 1967, 68 piece. 
You should have been there. <laughs> San Francisco in 1967-68 was quite the thing. But anyhow, he was writing this book, and I was reading his drafts, and he's using words like love. I've never, I've never seen a, uh, an academic book that used words like that. And he said that's what's so good about this new viewpoint. He, he knew about Bowlby's theory. And it is that it's, it's talking about the common everyday experiences we have, but it's giving you a way to really see those from the outside as well as experiencing them from the inside. To understand in a deep way why our connections with other people are so important. It's, it's the whole thing. We describe the study as being a study of about 180 children. There were more than that at the beginning, but there was something like 170 that were followed all through life. And we started before they were born. We did that on purpose so that we could study parental attitudes and expectations independent of a child. And the study was very detailed, age by age. We observed each baby with usually with parent, we observed each baby 11 times by the time they were 18 months old. So it was a very intensive study. We looked at all aspects of development, uh, cognitive development, temperament, language development, peer relationships, all aspects of the child's development. And we also looked at the context that the families were operating in. We measured life stress very extensively, and frequently, so that we know the kind of stress the families were experiencing, as well as the amount of social support the families had. That was really important to us for two reasons. First of all, once you start looking at the uh, surrounding context of families, you'll have no tendency to be pointing fingers of blame at parents. Uh, because we, we found repeatedly, as the stress they were experiencing went down, or as the support increased, they were able to do better with their children and the children's problems would get better. Very early in the study, we found that if a child say was anxiously attached at 12 months, they were more likely to be securely attached at 18 months if the family stress went down in that six month period. That was very important to us. It also gives you some clues about, as a society, about what we need to do. Obviously, families need more support than we've been giving them, especially in recent years. Uh, there's too many families under too much stress with too little support. Mm -hmm. There is no question that that's hard on children. And right now, families are feeling that more than, I mean, who knows, but this has been yeah, it's a, tough a time. Yeah, it's yeah. been real tough on the children, the families. It's been real hard. I'll give an example of one finding and then say why it was important to do such a comprehensive study. We found that we could predict dropping out of high school with 77% accuracy by the time the child was three years of age. And that's not uh, just social class because these were all children born into poverty, the whole sample. So social class is rather controlled. So even within that, predicting who will and who won't drop out. Now, we would like to make the argument that it was the 
the structure and care that the parents provided for the child in the first three years that laid the foundation to let them be successful at school. But how do we know it isn't what they were doing later? Like when the child was 10 or when they were in high school. Well, because we measure all that and we can control for that statistically and show the early experience still accounts. How do we know that it isn't just that smart parents have smart kids and then they don't drop out of school? Well, we measured parent IQ, we measured child IQ, and these predictions hold taking that into account. Kids generally don't drop out of school because they were born stupid. They drop out of school because they never had a chance. And again, not to blame the parents. Remember, these parents are operating, we are not providing what the kids need adequately, are operating under high stress and with low social support. So that's just one. But we, we studied them every age, right up into adulthood. We were able to have our own preschool where we studied a subset of them. We were able to have our own summer camps where we studied a subset of them. So we're with, with, with them every day, all day, filming observers, a fleet of observers around the perimeter of the playground. When they were in nursery school, we had five mounted cameras and 10 mounted speakers, as well as observers looking through one white glass. So we, we studied and studied and studied them, and we were able to see incredible details about development. For example, we could see things like uh, certain children experience a lot of control and discipline from teachers, preschool teachers. We could predict who those children would be. The teachers were not informed about attachment histories, but we could analyze our data afterwards and find out which were the kids that the teachers were uh, harsher with or more controlling of. Which of the kids did the teachers infantilize? In other words, give them too much nurturance instead of helping them get up and get going on their own. We could predict that from these histories. So we began to be able to see how what the child experiences in the early years sets them up to come to new situations and ex have certain expectations and behave in certain ways that lead others to react to them how they do. For example, show the children a series of three pictures. The first one, a child is building a block tower. The second picture shows another child walking by. The tower is still standing in the second picture. The third picture shows the tower crumbled. Ask children what happened. Those who have secure histories tend to say things like, this kid was building a tower and this other kid came by and accidentally knocked it down. He'll help him build it up again. Mm. Kids with histories of avoidant attachment, which is based on chronic rejection and emotional unavailability, say things like, this kid was building a tower, this other kid came by and knocked it down. There's nothing in the picture that says it was like that. Or... Uh, Children in the class were dancing one day and a child entered the classroom and went up to a little girl and asked her to dance and she said no and he went off into a corner and sulked. A second child came in, went up to that same little girl. She said no and he skipped on to another person. And she said yes and they went and danced. Now look at that. Those two kids encountered the same experience. They both understood she didn't want to dance with them. They understood that equally well. 
But the first child with a history of avoidant attachment took it as a personal rejection and went off by himself, didn't go to get comforted by anybody, but isolated. The second child just skipped on, maybe. So in a way, he didn't even experience rejection. Mm-hmm. He experienced, she said no, and maybe he thought, yeah, well, I don't know what's up with her today, but, but he didn't experience rejection. So over and over again, you can see, and, and this, this can be done with quantitative data. We did lots of measures of representation, you know, story stems and that sort of thing, family drawings. And you, could, you can see in, in all those representations, sentence completions, most kids always, secure kids with security want to play with me. Most kids always, other kids will say, are mean to me. Mm-hmm. People get pictures of the world that are congruent with what they experience. And then they act in the world based on those experiences. So it's not that what happened to you early on made it inevitable what will happen later. But what happened to you early on creates a worldview that leads you to interpret situations in a certain way, to create situations in a certain way, to elicit reactions from other people in a certain way. Today's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive daily nutritional beverage out there. With so many stressors in life, it's really hard to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods. So this is where Athletic Greens can help. They have a daily all-in-one superfoods powder, and it's a nutritional essential. It's so easy, and you just mix a scoop into water, shake it up, and boom, One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins and minerals and whole food sourced from ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. And it all works together, increases your energy and focus, helps with digestion, and you don't need to take multiple products. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash humans and join health experts, athletes, and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash humans and get your free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Pipette is a clean baby and mom care brand with a mission to give every family the best start. Any parent wants the best for their children, and that includes using only the safest products on their delicate skin. Pipette has quickly become a customer favorite for its ultra-gentle baby lotions, oils, and washes. And right now, you can score 30% off its entire collection of personal care items. Pipette also does more than just the 12 potentially harmful ingredients in skincare products that the FDA bans. Pipette also bans more than 2,000, ensuring that its products are safe, effective, and use only non-toxic ingredients. Pipette's products are also Environmental Working Group certified, vegan, hypoallergenic, sustainable, pediatrician, dermatologist approved. So visit pipettebaby.com, P-I-P-E-T-T-E-B-A-B-Y.com, 
and get 30% off if you put in humans. Have you heard of Agency? It is a future-defining skincare brand that believes that you deserve customized products for your dynamic and ever-evolving skin. So I started off taking a few minutes to fill out some information and upload photos of my skin so that Agency could match my skin with a licensed dermatology provider who created a custom formula with research-backed ingredients for me. And then it came in the mail magically. So I got a right, happy, easy package. And all I have to do, the directions are just pump this one pump in my hands, rub it on my face. And that was my entire skincare recommendation, which if you're a busy parent, you understand that that is really helpful. So I tried it. I love it. I feel like it's a personalized anti-aging skincare and it's evolving with me. It checks in if you have any changes or you need to make any changes. And if you go to agency.com slash humans, you can get a free 30-day trial and you just pay the $4.95 for shipping and handling. So definitely go to agency.com slash humans and you can unlock your free 30-day trial. In a study by Esquire, 54% of women said they'd rather be hit by a car than considered fat. If I'm being honest, I've been those women. So for me, this isn't just a podcast, it's personal. I'm Danielle Robay, TV host and journalist, and years of celebrity interviewing taught me that beauty isn't about what you look like, it's about who you become. Each week, I'm having thought-provoking conversations, digging into the stories of people who put a new spin on pretty. From entrepreneurs and authors to politicians and celebrities, no topic is off limits. So join me every Thursday for a new episode to feel pretty inspired, pretty seen, and best of all, pretty smart. Because I know that there will be listeners who will hear this and think about their child who has a particular temperament and potentially get really panicked. I wonder if you could address temperament in this context. There are a couple of things I'll say about that. First of all, the temperaments of securely attached babies are as different as can be. Thank you. And actually, will you define temperament for everyone? Well, usually what temperament refers to is the particular behavioral style of the child. There are various dimensions of temperament. For example, uh, one that's been talked about for a long time is some children are kind of slow to warm up and other children are uh, engaged really quickly. Some children are very easy to arouse. Just a little stimulation is enough to get some babies pumped and moderate, <laughs> moderate stimulation may be too much for some mm -hmm. babies. Whereas other babies, you need to really pump them up to get them to be affective. So temp that's temperament. And it's a very distinctly different concept than attachment. Attachment's about a relationship. Mm -hmm. Attachment is how confident is this baby that this parent will be responsive? And so you can imagine a, a baby that's uh, very active could be confident that the parent will respond. A baby that's very low key could be confident. So the temperament of those with secure histories comes in all flavors. And what, how we take temperament into account as parents is we try to adjust our behavior to fit that particular baby. 
Yes. That's what, when, when we use the term sensitive care, we don't mean thin skin. We mean sensitive to the baby's needs and signals, alert and attuned to the baby's needs and signals. When we say responsive parent, we mean a parent who does what the baby is showing it needs, what it intends. So picking up a baby all the time is not necessarily responsive. In fact, if they're not wanting to be picked up, it's not responsive. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes people say, what about parents that do too much for a baby? Well, that's, that's a misnomer. You do what the baby intends. I'm playing with my baby, six month old say. You know, I'm gooing away at him and <laughs> and making faces and come on, come on. We're doing this for a while and he's, he's all engaged with me and then he turns his head away. Well, that's a signal. He, he didn't intend it as a signal, but as an adult, I can take the meaning of that. Oh, he needs a little break. So I pull back and wait a second. Then he turns back in, then I engage him again. It's straightforward, but now when he turned away, if I went after him and kept talking to him, I'd wind up making him cry. Mm -hmm. It's like the shaking keys when a baby's not looking, like starts to turn away. I feel like that's the kind yeah. of thing that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you do things because you're trying to get the baby's attention. It's perfectly good. Mm -hmm. But not when he's signaling that it's being a it's little. time to. Yeah. yeah. I need a little break here. And so it's not it's not going to be one way of interacting because different babies need a different exactly. interaction. Exactly. And then, there, then there's another thing about temperament. You have to look at the, the whole package of a child. So let's take, for example, a pretty high activity level. Well, a child can have pretty high activity level in your preschool classroom. And that can be just fine. If they also are empathic towards other children, if they positively engage others, if when you need them to sit quietly, they can do that, they can adjust their behavior. It's all right if preferred tempo is quite a bit of movement. And even when you're sitting around, everybody's sitting around at story time, one kid may be kicking his legs and this and that, that's fine. Another kid may be completely rock still. That's fine. So it takes all kinds of temperaments. The, the, one, the one place that I don't go is to say that uh, some babies are born with a temperament that uh, necessarily caused them to have an anxious attachment, that they're the cause of their attachment. Now, there, there are kids that are off the, off the range. Right. There, there are kids with classic Connor syndrome who are, would be a challenge to every parent, granted. Mm -hmm. And these uh, institutionalized infants, you know, from Romania or Russia or wherever, uh, that were in those institutions for a long time, and then you adopt one of those. Yeah, you get your work cut out for you. And yes, that kid is a real factor there. Not, which even that doesn't mean they can't be helped to organize their behavior. Most of those kids uh, that are adopted from those institutions have a good chance to be in a secure relationship ultimately. 
I really believe that. And I think the data shows that. You know, it shows it's harder when they're older, when they're adopted. They had, you know, they missed a lot. So you got mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. But the, the temperament question is a good one. And, and for my money, it's really, it's nice that temperament is an attachment and attachment isn't temperament. Yes. Because if you want to, you know, if you want, you can assess the temperament of a child. You can assess the attachment of a child and you know so much more about it. The same with IQ. You know, I kind of disparaged IQ as, as being of tremendous importance uh, because it gets too much credit in psychology. It's taken as too important. I remember when the early uh, studies of child abuse were done and they found that they didn't find differences in IQ and they said child abuse doesn't have any consequence. Oh my God. Well, that was that was partly because psychology worships IQ. Was, right. Because when you're looking at outcomes and IQ is the outcome, and you're like, well, but that's important to say because so many, so often people will say, Well, I turned out great because I went to Harvard, because that's the measure versus like how well, you sure. and, and, and yeah, there's no question our our culture, uh, academic success is uh, important. It helps. And so but I interrupted you. Go back to IQ being um, what you were saying. Oh, I was saying, I was saying, okay, so IQ is an attachment and IQ is a temperament and temperament is an IQ and temperament. That's great. We can study all of that. And then, you know, you want to predict how kids will do at school. I mean, that's what IQ tests were developed for, you know, so you take, I, I didn't mean to imply that IQ wasn't important. I just mean to say, Dropping out of school doesn't have to do with IQ. Exactly. Yeah, but success in school has something to do with IQ. I mean, as it should. That was the criterion that IQ tests were developed to predict. And I felt very fortunate to get a good education and all of that stuff. It's, it's really good. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I feel like that it, being able to contribute in that way as well was really good for many people. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm in the mind of a listener thinking about, oh, I didn't really think about my experience, my early experiences or my, how I came to be who I am. And now mm -hmm. I'm looking at my children and their past infancy, maybe they're toddlers, maybe they're teenagers. And I'm recognizing some of the things that you're talking about and wondering about what my connection is and was I attuned? Am I attuned? Is it too late? What would you say? Well, the last question is the easiest one. No, it's not too late. <laughs> and uh, chances are, if you're asking yourself that question, you did some good things. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm pretty confident about that. Mm -hmm. uh, most people that, and of course, parents have doubts about their parenting. You know, mm. my, children are in their 50s and I still have doubts you know, <laughs> as does my wife I mean of course you do uh it's it goes with the territory but it's definitely not too late if you, even even when your kids are adults there are times when they're going to need you and you can be there so yeah I I always feel bad when uh Parents have called up and asked, you know, so they think they're doing badly, you know, for their child and stuff. And 
it always makes me feel bad because it's a it's a way of suffering that uh, that I, I wish I could help more. But I think the thing to the thing to know. All right, here here's here's a point I would really love to make because it comes out of it, it comes out of my life. It comes out of our research, and that is, what about? All right, I'll give you. I have to do this quickly, but I'll give you two cases. One child started out very positively. All, all the first five, six years of life, everything was great, securely attached, great reports from school. Mm-hmm. Then all kinds of bad stuff happened. Uh, acrimonious divorce, father and siblings move away. A few years go by, mother dies, everything <laughs> bad. Then this, this kid's struggling as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Who's surprised at that? You mean his secure attachment history didn't keep him from suffering? Well, no. Right. But lo and behold, he finds a partner as a young adult who's a very supportive woman. And when I saw him with his son in our two-year assessment, he's one of the best fathers I've ever seen. And what I would say <sighs> is that what I would say is that what he got early on was a stepping stone that when he met this woman, he could take advantage of that relationship. And I don't mean exploit. I mean, of course, he could take the opportunity. This opportunity came. He could capitalize on that opportunity. He could learn to be more open to his feelings again because he was in a safe relationship. And so Was his early experience gone? No. Then another case, this girl, everything started out bad. I I can't take the time to go into it, but, uh, you know, abuse and chaos and addiction in the family. I mean, all bad. And then in middle childhood, she and her mom both had therapy and things got quite a bit better. She looked really good by age 10. And then, then we come to adolescence with her and think she fell apart again because you know, there's not enough firmness there yet. Now, I'm gonna stop the story there. It actually has a, a better ending, but I'm not gonna go to there. I wanna, I wanna stop there and say, now you're a therapist with this, assume you're a therapist with this person and you're trying to reach her. You don't know this history, and she can't really tell you it the way I can tell you it because I was there and saw it. But you don't know that history. But you do know that she's really having trouble trusting. You know that she's has a great feeling of vulnerability. You know that she, she's really shaky. She does, she has lots of symptoms. And so, but you're going to try to help her. And you ask yourself, how can I help this kid? You know, she had so many problems. Well, there was an island established for her too in middle childhood. And that's not gone. You you don't know, you don't even know you're doing this because you couldn't know. But you're reaching back and connecting with that island, with that previously supportive therapist that she doesn't even tell you she had because she doesn't even remember it at this point, and you can help her. 
So what I would say to these parents that you're talking about, almost all of us experienced some good stuff, even those of us who had difficult childhoods. Mine was not only difficult. There were good things in it. And while uh, my parents couldn't show me they loved me, I think, in fact, they did. I think that after years of therapy, but they couldn't show it. But I know that there were there was stuff they did. And so later with my wife, who is a healthier person than I am, and with therapy, they can connect with that. So you're, you're a parent now and you've got a teenager and they're having lots of problems, which is a frequent occurrence for all of us parents of teenagers. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, did I fail? Did I really screw up all along? Well, no, you didn't. You gave a lot of love. You gave a lot of good stuff. And yeah, there were probably things that could have been done better because you're uh, a human person. <laughs> but what you can do right now with this struggling teenager is you can be, you know, get your, get your own resources in order, get the care you need so you have it to give. And now you can be responsive, open to the feelings of this child. You can let them know that you care about them. And it's in the back of their mind, the other solid stuff you did. I, I, I saw, I've seen it happen a number of times. Parents go, go in to see uh, the therapist of their teenage kid, you know, because they're getting a, a review or the parents want to talk to them. And they find out there, the therapist tells them, this kid did this tells me all the time how, how great you are, how much he loves you. <laughs> what he does? <laughs> That's not what I've been hearing at home. <laughs> but of course he does. You are his attachment figure. Kids always, this is, here's another Bowlby statement. My father is my father, though he be many years dead and buried, and he always will be. Your attachment figure always will be your attachment figure. It never, it never will disappear. And the parents that are listening to your podcast, I guarantee you they, their kids are attached to them because they're, that's why they're, they're seeking out this information. They're wanting to be better parents. Mm-hmm. It's so true. I always feel like if you're here, things are, things are going well in that it might not feel that way today. Of course. Every life really has its challenges. And actually, for your kids' sake, you don't want their lives to be challenge-free. You know, they're not going to be eventually. Actually, would you, if you have another few minutes, could you just expand on that? Because... It's such an important thing to hear from you about um, the difference. Again, I'm just trying to pull apart things like temperament and attachment are not the same thing. And providing a smooth ride is not the same thing either. Well, there really is no smooth ride, I don't think. No, actually, you're right. (laughs) Even if you try, that will... (laughs) Right, but I mean, that's where people thinking about their own lives and uh, and frankly, again, it is one reason I, I wrote that book is because I want 
to make the point that the the rough spots along the way are potentially useful when you get beyond them. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and all those other cliches. But I mean this a little more developmentally. The way development tends to work is with periods of equilibrium and rather steady flow and then a disruptions and a reorganization and then you move forward again. And those disruptions and, and uh, disorganizing periods are just as important as the smooth growth periods. Yeah, you don't wish for your kids to have problems. Lots of times, you know, when my own children did things or made choices that I thought were going to give them trouble, you know, like yeah, go somewhere where they didn't know anybody kind of thing, mm-hmm. or uh, take on a step before I saw them as ready. And sometimes you even see them take on that step. I don't think you're ready. They take it on and they flop. Mm-hmm. You, you, you not only can't protect them from all of that, you don't want to protect them from all of that. There's sort of no way to grow up without stumbling along. You know, watch babies learning to walk. Watch toddlers. You just can't do it without falling. It's just nice to remember we can't do it if we wanted to. And it's just as well we can't do everything for them. When we studied our three-year-olds, when they were three, we had a a teaching task, four different problems that the parent was to teach the child. And when the parent just did it for the child, yeah, there was no conflict, but that just robbed the kid of learning anything. And those are the kind of measures we use to predict dropping out of school. The parents that would give the kid a clue, but then let them struggle with it and give them just the next one and help them struggle with the next step. That's exactly what we measured and that's exactly what predicted succeeding in school or dropping out. That's very relevant every day. That's true. In this era of COVID, it is relevant every day to know that there are gonna be stresses. And mm-hmm. Well, I hope we, get, hope we get over this before too much longer though for everybody. Yeah, it's a fine balance. To There was some article in the New York Times that was talking about how kids will be totally fine with masks. Young children will be fine with masks, seeing masks all the time and parents shouldn't worry about it. And I was thinking it's such a fine balance between keeping calm and recognizing how the resilience of human beings and young children and also acknowledging that some of these things are just not, they're not great. And we should do what we can to make them better. Sure. Because there's no reason to like push a panic button and just have everybody worried because of all the good stuff. Um, And I think a lot of good stuff came out of this too. Hopefully we'll come out of this, but so much. So I have one more question for you. Okay. Can I squeeze one in? Sure. Okay. And then I'm just going to have a show note to the link for people to get this book so that they can have all of this. But what is your view of that place, that island that you're talking about? Do you, how did you know to find, for example, if I may ask personally, but you could just ignore it and give a different example. 
how did your nervous system know to go toward your wife who had a more secure date or secure attachment history? How did you know to find that kind of island? Like if you don't have that place or how did you find a memory of that? How do you find it if you don't know what it is? Yeah. It's not easy. And I would say in my life, I stumbled around for a while, but you'll tend to know it when you get there. I mean, you you know, <laughs> yeah, I didn't exactly have a plan, but even in your way, like, were, did you understand attachment before you under before you or, met your wife? Sure, sure, yeah. Do you think that that awareness well, helped you go in a direction of health versus maybe being more? unconsciously being attracted to a relationship that would create early experiences and an island that maybe you recognized but wasn't as safe? Well, I would say that studying uh, attachment theory and doing this work helped me see how important close relationships were and dispelled any idea that, well, maybe I can just, you know, maybe I don't really need to be with somebody. Now, you know, people can be perfectly happy not being in relationships. I'm not making a prescription for people. But for me, uh, before I met my wife, which who was my second wife, I lived alone for a couple of years. And I knew quite clearly I did not like it. And that was probably partly from studying this, this stuff too. So, you know, that was part of it. And um, I don't know, you, it, it's, it's, it's not so easy to answer how you know when you get there, but I did know. And we, we've now been married 43 years, so. That feels right. <laughs> yep. And, you know, struggles along the way. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I don't have a I don't have a prescription. I, I just I just know that 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 all of us have these islands of positivity and support, and we can build on those. And so that's what when when we think about attachment and think about our children and why maybe that's what I wanted to ask you is why is attachment important long term. Oh, Haha, ha. like the last little little baby question, but in terms of your adult relationship, and maybe I was maybe I was looking for some easy way to shift how you find your island so that if you didn't know what it would feel like to have that safety, how you could well, imagine I think, it. I think the uh, case I was talking about, the young man who who uh, where everything fell apart and then he found a supportive partner. Yeah. You know, we interview these people quite regularly. So we happen to know that it wasn't instantaneous that all of a sudden he was open to his feelings. It took a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, she reported that, 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 <laughs> that he, you know, that he, he's real s- sweet, but he really is guarded about his feelings. But that he was getting better, you know, and over time he did. So, and then it was reinforced that it was safe for him to do that. You know, it's like, I I make this analogy all the time that uh, think of development as of the person is like uh, building a house. 
and attachments to foundation. Well, is that more, more important than anything else? Well, there's a way in which it's fundamental. That's why it's called foundation, because mm-hmm. it sort of sets the frame for what the house can be, and the house without a foundation isn't going to be very good. But on the other hand, you need a roof as well. And I have friends that live in Berkeley, uh, right, right on the fault line, and they've retrofitted their house to make it more earthquake-proof. That's brilliant. It's, it's a very good model. It's a good metaphor. Oh my God. I just moved to California and it, and just retrofitted my house and my brain did not connect that. That's such a beautiful metaphor. Of course. I like like that one a lot. It's a good, um, optimistic, uh, note to end this conversation. Well, it's been, it's been really fun talking with you.